So this is our 64th episode of uh, Battery Revolution podcast, and um, every single week we, or every single month, we learn so much about the different aspects, um, different involvements, initiatives, innovations happening in the battery industry. Uh, I don't think I've ever been introduced actually to the topic of natural nanosilicons for anodes. And so this is a topic I'm very curious about and, um, uh, and very excited about. Throughout, uh, please, in terms of the audience members, please do not hesitate to put your questions in the chat. And then once Andre and Jake have introduced their topic, feel free to also raise your hand if you'd like to come up on stage and ask your questions. But for now, uh, Andre and Jake um, would love to give you the floor uh, so that you can introduce what you're working on and introduce yourselves and the topic as well. Great. Uh, thank you, guys. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, discuss our company and answer any questions you may have. Um, I'll start by introducing myself and then um, in the company and then, um, you know, Jake can also introduce himself and then we can kind of you know dive in that way if that works. <clears throat> so, um, so, yeah, my name is Andre Zaytun. I'm the founder and CEO of Ionic Mineral Technologies. Um, Ionic Mineral Technologies is a... Uh, we kind of have a unique uh, approach. Uh, we're solely dedicated to producing <clears throat> nanosilicon, uh, you know, powders for the, uh, you know, lithium-ion battery markets. And really, what sets us apart, I think, is um, we kind of have a combination of a, um, a proprietary kind of continuous process to start with a a, um, <clears throat> a mineral feedstock that is um, a, a mineral called haloisite, which is a naturally occurring nanotube. Um, again, it's an aluminum silicate. And so the we essentially, instead of trying to synthesize a nanoparticle, we start with a nanoparticle coming out of the ground and, um, you know, combined with a, um, of a scalable, robust uh, process that relies on <clears throat> conventional type, you know, thermal reduction equipment, <clears throat> we can... Um, we can produce a, uh, a nanosilicon product that is essentially um, almost identical to the uh, naturally occurring nanotube structure of the mineral that we start with. And so, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave that introduction as a long one there, and I'll let Jake uh, uh, introduce himself as well. Yeah, good good morning or good afternoon to you guys. Thanks for uh, inviting me and Andre on. Um, my name is Jake Entwistle. I'm the director of battery materials here at Ionic. Um, and so my work is sort of involves uh, taking this mineral, which we control uh, and putting it through our um, patent pending process uh, to produce the nanosilicon. And so that's, that's my area of expertise. Uh, I did my PhD um, on this uh, production process um, and that's how I started ended up here at Ionic, um, moved to the US from the United Kingdom. Uh, and I also lead up our sort of in-house uh, battery testing capabilities that we have here in Utah. So yeah, that's, that's from me. Thanks, Jake. So um, Simon, uh, how should we go from there? Maybe just kind of start with a bit of a kind of 30,000 foot overview and and then just see great. questions come or do you want to do, you have, do you have questions to start with? Uh, let me know what's the best way to proceed. I think it would be great, yeah, if we could just start with a higher overview for people who don't mm -hmm. know. Again, maybe some people have never really heard of silicon and why, you know, this is relevant for batteries. And then 
why maybe could you go to the sources you are going to write from a natural perspective and nanomaterials, et cetera? Sure, that's, that's great. Yeah, so yeah, big picture. I mean, um, nanosilicon and why? Um, <clears throat> essentially, the way we you know look at the world, and again, this is, um, I think, kind of universally accepted at this point, uh, nanosilicon is considered one of the most enabling materials for next generation um, you know, electric vehicle, you know, batteries, as well as all, you know, lithium ion batteries. But where I think where we see the, the biggest need for this material is in the, is in the, um, you know, electric vehicle industry. And the reason why is because nanosilicon essentially has about 10 times the energy, uh, excuse me, uh, capacity as, uh, current, um, graphite, uh, anodes that are used today. And so the, you know, to be able to see mass adoption of electric vehicles go from, you know, 10% globally to the, you know, goal of over 50%, you know, and, and in some cases, a lot of the um, vehicle manufacturers are kind of targeting zero, you know, fuel burning cars, you know, by 2030 um, being sold. So the um, so very, very big um, projections, um, yeah, a lot of work laid out in front of them. And really, we see nanosilicon as the the most enabling technology mainly because of the ability to have longer range but also more importantly in our view is the fast charging capabilities um, nanosilicon is really the only material in the market today that can be used in conventional processes that are using you know graphite chemistries to be able to enable that fast charging and that's one of the biggest i think challenges for being able to see mass adoption of electric vehicles and so um you know, it's not a, you know, every day you hear about a new breakthrough and, you know, uh, battery technology and whatnot, but this is really the most practical, you know, way of being able to do it because, again, it doesn't require any retooling from the existing um, cell manufacturer plants that are in place. And also partial substitutions of graphite make significant differences in the actual ability to charge fast and for longer range. And so um, the big challenge <clears throat> However, is the is that um, while silicon has been used um, and is currently being used in pretty much all vehicles, um, you know, uh, at this point in the in the batteries, the the big challenge is is that the um, the material swells um, when it's during lithiation during charging, and then um, in some cases, if it's not small enough uh, crystallite size, if it's above 150 nanometers, it swells and cracks and then forms an additional SEI uh, formation. And therefore you see, you know, capacity fade, you know, from cycle to cycle. And so current batteries today are using anywhere from, you know, three to 10% of silicon. <clears throat> However, what's being used for the most part is uh, metallurgical grade silicon, which is a large particle. And so the big goal of the industry is to be able to start incorporating more and more substitution of um, graphite with silicon. However, at the nanoscale, if it can be produced at the nanoscale, this, this um, you know, volume swelling and, and also um, capacity you know, fade is, um, is significantly, uh, you know, curtailed. And so um, the big challenge is how do you make anything at the nanoscale and how do you do that economically um, for an industry like electric vehicles and how do you do it in a way where you're actually mass producing such materials so that um, can meet the you know, the quality control and meet the actual needs of the of the vehicles. And really, I think where we have a, where we see our advantages is that um, versus some of the 
<clears throat> some of our peers, which are um, trying to produce nanosilicon or are in the process of scaling up the production of nanosilicon from a silane based, um, you know, feedstock. Um, we are actually um, using a mineral called haloisite, which is a naturally occurring, again, uh, silicate nanotube with the perfect dimensions of what's essentially going to need it uh, below that 150 nanometer, and it's uh, porous as well. And so, because we're already starting with that synthesis, uh, or that with the with the nanomaterial synthesized, the um, the uh, the ability to be able to now take that material reduce it from a silicon oxide to a silicon metal while preserving the the morphology of the particle is really where um where we feel there's a, a big scalability advantage <clears throat> and so um so with that i'll stop and just see if anyone had any questions before we you know, dove in but um that's um kind of a thirty thousand foot view i think of the market as well as the uh differentiator between us and some of our peers Thank you so much, Andre. So if I'm understanding correctly, then what you're saying is that silicon is required in order to help us meet um, our electric vehicle mm -hmm. uh, performance targets. But currently, there is a technical challenge when you're using silicon is that the material actually swells when you're charging a battery, which means that you're going to degrade and deteriorate your battery a lot faster than you than you would need to. Um, but since we do need to incorporate more silicon and graphite mixes, uh, then you need you need a better way or you need a better material for silicon so that you can curtail that problem of swelling and cracking. So now your company is really you're positioning yourselves to be able to mass produce uh, nanosilicons that are uh, produced from natural um, source materials. Uh, that allows you to uh, better get to that um, end material, which is a silicon that you can then use in your battery without introducing extra steps that are cumbersome to adopt in the industry. Am I understanding correctly? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the big uh, thing here, though, just to, to, to mention is that convention, you know, the, the silicon that's being used today in small amounts in batteries is metallurgical grade silicon, and this is kind of a larger particle silicon. And so they can only limit a very small amount of that material to be able to 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 be stable in a current um, graphite based, um, you know, chemistry. And so the to be able to incorporate more um, silicon and replace more graphite to with the goal to be able, you know, by increasing the amount of silicon, you're increasing your, the, um, you know, energy density of the battery as well as the fast charging capabilities. But to be able to do that, that material needs to be produced at the nano scale, to, um, mm. to be able to be stable. And so, and that's the big challenge. I think that everyone is really at this point now really trying to scale up. Is you know, um, metallurgical grade silicon is made every day. However, being able to make it at that nano scale. Um, and and with, with porosity is really the, the the key. And so, yeah, we feel that you know because we're already starting with a nano silica that is a nanotube of the kind of perfect um, you know, dimensions and characteristics. The, um, the, the 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 steps of scaling that up is um, significantly simplified using our. You know, in our process here, because of that, um, because of that ideal feedstock that we, 
you know, that we possess. And I should also mention that we also control our deposit as well. So we're one of the only um, vertically integrated producers of, um, of, of nanosilicon uh, materials. Andre, could you hone in a little bit more about uh, what is the advantage of using the Halloy, uh, the Halloy site as a feedstock? So I know you touched a little bit on the material is porous. It's uh, it allows you to um, perform reduction steps uh, a lot easier. But could you explain a little bit further what are the pain points associated with using um, or with the production of other uh, nanosilicons versus with your feedstock. Uh, sure, Jake, I think this would be a good good place for you to, to kind of chime in here and talk about some of the work you've done with, you know, in your PhD with other, you know, silica sources and kind of what we're seeing with our material. And I think this is a perfectly up your alley to, to describe. Yep, um, <clears throat> that's great. Um, I can tell that, no problem. So, yeah, what we've sort of, just to summarize Ionic's key advantages and two um, key two advantages simply it's the control of the halocyte feedstock and then the um, the patented or patent pending process that we have to convert that feedstock into a silicon battery material um, and so the the process that we use is a, is a reduction process where you can start with a silica SiO2 uh, you put it through a reduction process uh, typically with a metal the metal removes the oxygen from the SiO2 to create a metal oxide and what you're left with then is silicon silicon metal as your product um, and what how the process is unique is if done correctly all these um, steps are performed under the melting point of all of the um, silica feedstock and the silicon product and so what, what that allows you to do is to maintain the structure of the feedstock in the final product. So you can effectively start with a nanotube or nanomaterial, reduce it, and it can keep its nanomorphology without melting and creating these big, um, larger particles, which is not what we want for battery applications. And so there's been quite a lot of work done on many different natural and synthetic silica sources for this process uh, and we've we've looked at uh, many different sources here at ionic as well um, but the the halloy site itself as it comes out of the ground it's a naturally occurring nanotube um, and so it's it's roughly 50 nanometers in diameter 500 nanometers to a thousand nanometers in length and it's hollow in the center so it's, it's really a nanotube 15 nanometers in diameter, but the, the center of the tube, 13 nanometers is hollow. Um, and so it's really a, a naturally occurring feedstock that we can obtain in large volumes. And we can put it through this, uh, our proprietary process to create a nano silicon uh, battery material at the other side as our product. And it's really the nano scale properties of lysite that are, that are key. So yeah, I, hopefully that answered your question, but. I believe it does. Yeah, thank you so much, Jake. What I uh, learned from that is that you're able to actually uh, produce your silicon metal as an end product using a process that 
is less energy intensive. It's performed under the melting point so that you can actually maintain a feed, the feedstock structure that you care about, which is the nanotube. So that is sort of, in my mind, the value proposition is that your manufacturing process is able to maintain or preserve a structure that is difficult to to recreate um, using different uh, feedstocks. Yeah. Other than yours. Yeah. I think um, to sort of uh, go into that a little more is this sort of nanomorphology. Um, we we have a top-down approach, but this this same structure is being produced by our our peers in a bottom-up approach. So they'll try and produce the morphology that we can get from the halite by synthesizing mm -hmm. silicon with silane gas as their feedstock. Um, and we could perhaps go go into that further later in the call. But um, yeah, our, our process on top of that is performed at much lower temperatures, much lower energy intensity. Uh, and ultimately that gives us an advantage as well in the in the final material where um, where these the sort of emissions that we we you produce to produce a ton of this material are, are projected to be very low. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jake. Uh, Andre and Jake, is there anything else you'd like to introduce us to? I know there's a, a bunch of questions um, that the audience already has, and we have a bunch of questions too, but would love for you to, um, um, to introduce us to whatever ideas you'd like to before we jump into the Q&A. Sure. Um, I'll just <clears throat> maybe just mention one more thing here too that I think, um, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's also an incredibly attractive, um, you know, financial aspect of what we're doing as well here too, because, um, you know, versus starting with a, let's say a silane gas, for example, or, you know, the, um, you know, being able to start with a mineral, you know, is, um, you know, it's one thing to be able to make a great, you know, anode material, but to be able, you know, at the nano scale, however, being able to do it economically is really the key, right? And so the, um, and to be able to have an abundant feedstock source is also <clears throat> what's, um, you know, what's, what's important, I think, to industry. And so just to kind of, um, you know, mention that and just to kind of look, just to let you know where we are commercially, we're currently, um, we're um, currently, you um, in the process of, uh, we have a 36,000 square foot manufacturing facility that's uh, under construction that will be complete in September of this year. And we have, um, we have plans um, to be scaling into our first 2,000 tons of um, manufacturing um, of uh, silicon uh, production, you know, uh, starting in Q1 of 2024. So um, the, um, you know, in a relatively short period of time, we've been able to Going to commission our pilot plant, demonstrate our, our technology, and um, and quickly move into um, you know quickly move into uh, you know into production um, with significantly less capex than some of the um, you know alternative technologies. So I'll kind of leave it there and welcome any questions that you guys have. Congratulations, uh, Andre and. Uh... Uh, we do have a few questions here in the chat, and uh, I know Simon has a few questions as well. So uh, why don't we uh, address some of the questions in the chat first? Um, Simon, what do you think? Sure, and also if the people want to come come on stage and ask it themselves, uh, we could definitely invite them as well to see if you have time. Otherwise, 
let us know in the chat and we can ask the questions for you as well. Yeah, so Sanaz and Mark, if you would like to be invited uh, to the stage to ask your questions, just raise your hands and we'll invite you up. Or in fact, I could invite you and you could uh, either accept or decline. And in the meantime, as we're waiting for that, Simon, if, uh, if you have a few other questions. Absolutely, no, I think it's great. So I see a hand up there, but maybe one before. Um, because whenever you bring something new, or like you want to bring something new to the market, right? I mean, I guess always there's there's sort of other players as well, and, and questions. And I think before going, maybe in you know maybe more questions also like costs and reliability and things. But one thing I'm wondering is from applications, because I've been looking at that a bit as well from a silicon perspective. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, you know it's it's quite common, right? That people companies are using, you know, some percent of, of silicon in their nodes. Um, I think it's quite well you know managed at this point. You mentioned as well, there's like high percent you can go. We have seen up to 100% or so more for, I think, Ampures, right? And more like um, more airborne applications. And I think there's some public information on Ampures and Airbus and things like that. Um, so just in here, it's quite interesting, right? You can go to very high silicon amounts, etc. So I'm wondering from your market segmentation, like where do you think, you know, something like where do you developing? What, what are you looking at most? Is it more like a automotive sector where there maybe is a smaller percentage of silicon but it's a big volume of course but maybe also quite tricky to enter because we know the automotive market can be quite challenging from getting all the approvals and reliability has to last a very long time or you're looking more like at niche markets mm -hmm. which may be a bit less stringent but may less volumes but maybe easier to capture so i'm just wondering that's a there. great question yeah that's a great question i mean the we're the, the answer to the question simply is that we're 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 looking at all the markets where you know where nano silicon you know delivers a you know significant you know solution um, to an unmet need and from an overall market perspective we see the the biggest need from the you know the biggest need that is from the electric vehicle market again because of the fast charging that nano silicon you know enables as well as the longer range that's needed. Um, you know, that said, you know, military applications for sure are, you know, um, a perfect example of, of, um, of, of a big need that nanosilicon can also address there. So, for example, there, I mean, there are certain, you know, applications, military, where you, now you can use nanosilicon for lightweighting. Right. So completely different need here than the electric vehicle, per se, because let's say if there's, you know, wearables, for example. <clears throat> You know the you know the anode you can reduce the weight of the anode by almost 90 percent to get to the same you know the same you know energy you know density of the battery right and so the um so being able to reduce weight is another big thing and also be able to fast charge you know at the same time or drones you know that need to you know carry heavy loads and whatnot and now the battery if you can reduce uh you know the anode part of the battery by 90% of its weight that's uh that's another big kind of um, big need that's uh the the nanosilicon can address um electronics for sure very you know and high power you know high performance type um you know applications uh, power tools you know where using you know perhaps using a, a making a 100% nanosilicon you know type uh, battery will you know deliver another big you know big need is also you know um you know, an area that we're focused on as well. So we're not just, um, I think as far as a market perspective, the biggest 
driver need is the is from the electric vehicle you know side of things but that doesn't mean it's the only market that you know could benefit from this and um and we're we're, we're certainly engaged with you know in all of these applications currently and for what it's worth That's also great. there was a there was um <clears throat> there's projections from you know benchmark minerals as well as um transparency market research and there was a that um the silicon anode market is expected to grow from 1.2 billion dollars today till about 208 billion dollars by 2032. so i mean it's a staggering kind of um example of a hugely unmet market need um and then also bringing in the fact that you know Graphite, you know, graphite's kind of the only material that, if um, if there was any tensions with China, uh, where China were to kind of cut off, you know, the rest of the world from, you know, from graphite, um, would completely devastate the entire electrification movement. You can get lithium, and you can get lithium iron phosphate, and you can get, um, you know, sorry, LFP type, you know, batteries as well. I mean, there's, you know, there's uh, the other battery materials are kind of are, are out there, but Graphite's a, is one that is completely dominated by China, and so there's, I think, also a really big need from a, you know, I guess U.S. independence, you know, standpoint here um, to develop anode materials as well that can, um, you know, partially substitute or completely substitute, um, you know, graphite in our current, you know, current chemistries. Great. No, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. That's a good point, right? I mean, here's also interesting with. Um, because you mentioned graphite, right? Like natural graphite and artificial graphite, and you know, I think there's interesting developments there as well. And I guess that's a bit of the the route you're also taking to present a potential alternative, right, to from synthetic silicon yeah, or nanosilicon. Sure. Yeah. Mark, thanks for joining. Would you maybe like to ask you a question? Hi, Mark. Are you able to unmute yourself? Otherwise, Mayam, would you like to ask for ask for Sana's question on this path? Yes, absolutely. So I'll ask uh, Sanaz's question, which is in the chat. Um, Sanaz is asking, what do you think about the future SI mix with GR or using composite SI-GR? Which, which one would win the completion and also about the cost of nanoscale SI? That's a good question. That's a great question. Um, you know, there's, you know, if you look at the markets outside of, you know, what the U.S. is doing, I mean, in China, China's really, um, their focus is on developing, you know, silicon carbon, you know, type, um, you know, composite material, as is, you know, the, some of the U.S., um, you know, peers that they're, they're making silicon composite, um, you know, materials. And um, <clears throat> the way we see, the, you know, the way, uh, this is another kind of advantage of what we're doing here. I mean, we're making a, hundred percent silicon you know drop in you know uh powder and so essentially we're giving the customer the opportunity to you know substitute as you know much of the graphite that they want to you know be able to do uh, i don't see a situation where where <clears throat> at least any time in the near future where someone is going to be making a silicon graphite you know, composite material that will be sold and, and, and be used as a hundred percent, you know, anode material, at least in the, in the electric vehicle uh, market. Um, so we would see that, you know, probably typically what we are seeing already is that even some of the, the silicon carbon composites that are being, you know, produced from, you know, China, let's say, which, uh, you know, that's, that's going into, 
that's going to be dropped into a to an existing graphite you know type chemistry so the capacity is not as high you know when you're when you've got a silicon carbon composite and so um so the um so to answer your question more specifically here um you know from what from our standpoint um we think it's all going to be used you know for sure i mean it currently is being used right now you know silicon carbon uh composites but i think the 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 big to give the customer the ability to take a pure silicon and mix it with the graphite you know themselves and substitute the graphite themselves i think gives the customer the uh the most flexibility in being able to utilize the material and um to put it in perspective you know our gen one you know product if you add 15 you substitute graphite with 15 percent we're basically doubling the capacity of the anode you know, um, going from 350 to about 700, you know, stable, you know, capacity just with a 15% substitution. Most of the, and that's because our our material, our initial pure silicon materials got about a 3200 MAHG initial discharge capacity with about an 85% ICE. So, you know, call it a, you know, 2900, uh, 28 to 2900, um, stable capacity material by itself when you let that down into a graphite you can use much less to get um a significantly more you know bump a significantly larger bump in, in capacity where some of the silicon carbon composites that we're seeing out there are you've got more of a more like a, a 1500 mahg initial discharge capacity so when that's being let down at the same percentage We'll only have about you know half the improvement um, in the in a graphite you know composite material or, um, versus our material at the same loading levels. So from a cost standpoint, the um, it's hard to answer that question on a generic basis because um, you know I think that um, every different process has a different uh, a different a different cost, um, and that's one where where we feel like because of our continuous process and also being vertically integrated, we can actually price our material once we come to market with it. Um, we'll, we'll be able to price our material on a kind of an equivalent, you know, cost of synthetic graphite on a MAHG basis. So I'm hoping that answers your question. It seems like it does. Sanas just uh, uh, said thanks in the chat. Uh, Mark, are you able to ask your question or should we ask it for you? I, I see his question. Yeah. So what do you do? What do you do with the anode scrap? But Mark, I'm yeah. happy to. Yeah. So yeah, Mark. Mark is asking, what do you do with the anode scrap? Can you reuse it? Uh, yeah. I mean, no reason that we wouldn't be able to 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 reuse it. We're we're hoping to to have very little scrap, you know, um, you know, to begin with. But whatever we do, you know, have you know, in scrap, we we definitely can, you know, reuse it for sure in our process. Thanks, Andre. I, Mark, I hope that answers your question. If you have an additional follow-up, feel free to unmute or ask it in the chat as well. Um, and Goto asked, uh, being B2B, what's your sales cycle like? So we're right now we're we're um, we're scaling up. You know what? You know from pilot to to production. Um, we have um, we're working with several you know strategic end users. <clears throat> of this and so um 
you know, what does the sales cycle look like? So the, luckily, I mean, the, the market is in need of this material. It's, it's an under, you know, it's a unmet need at this point. So there's not a, not a lot of convincing we need to do, um, you know, with a lot of the cell manufacturers or, or EV manufacturers, they already have kind of made significant investments on their own to be able to, you know, utilize nanosilicon. However, the, the sales cycle is really just, um, you know, taking material from, you know, from, um, you know, half cells to full cells to pouch cells to, you know, to, um, you know, to making full batteries and making sure that the, you know, that um, the cycle stability is there and you know, reproducibility is there. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't think that our sales cycle is, you know, would be any different than any other, you know, active material producer, um, you know, getting a, you know, a development product into the market. Thank you, Andre. Um, so anyone have any other questions, feel free to put in the chat. Uh, Simon and I do have a couple more questions. Um, my question is, um, I'm just curious about your performance testing. Uh, do you have to actually build out battery cells or battery packs to test for the performance of your materials? Or as a materials developer, you have a different type of process for that? Jake, you want to answer that one? Yes, yeah, sure. So we currently have some in-house testing capabilities here at Ionic. Um, they're limited to coin cell testing. Um, and I, I, as we sort of envision that we'll 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 always have those in-house testing uh, just from a quality control perspective on our material, um, even when we go into production. But at the moment, they're they're being used primarily as a as a research tool. So we we can one thing that we've perhaps not touched on is we can actually make a really wide range of nanosilicon materials with our process and feedstock, um, and so. They they may go into slightly different applications depending on depending on their properties. Um, so we we currently have those capabilities in house. We also have collaborations with um, cell manufacturers and, um, and and some vehicle OEM manufacturers where they're they're taking our materials in collaboration with us and we're we're, we're producing larger format. Um, cells currently and testing our material in those so so pouch cells primarily yeah i'll add to that too also i mean we're we're really big on you know characterization um of materials and as jake mentioned you know we just with our process the ability to tailor you know nanosilicon based on you know we can make materials that are 200 square meter per gram to five square meter per gram surface areas and port porosities that are 300% to 10% to, you know, particle size distributions that are, that are, you know, kind of, a, you know, across the curve and all of those things really, you know, play a key role in how the material actually performs in a, you know, in a battery. But, you know, the, um, you know, each run that we do and, you know, is, is met with, you know, we're doing XRF on every single sample. We're doing XRD, BET, you know, set a graph particle size distribution, um, measuring conductivity, pH, um, slurry rheology, um, and then you know, then after that, after everything is done there, that's when we you know make make the uh, make cells. And so, as Jake mentioned, that'll be our you know that'll be our quality control protocol. Um, but we have all those capabilities in house here to to um, 
you know, to uh, to ensure that the re reproducibility of um, of materials is um, of, of of highest um, importance. Well, that's great. Um, I think, as you say, right from a material standpoint, especially when you use natural materials, you have to ensure this. But maybe I can challenge you a little bit on this one with the sure. also Jake, what you mentioned on the on the coin cells, right? Because these I remember a bit from from my Cambridge days, and you know, looking at um, nanomaterials, also silicons, and you know, challenges with electrolyte and you know, high surface area and eating up electrolyte, and maybe also higher rates where you fry your silicon a bit, maybe and Distance and heat development, all these things where coin cells tend to be quite forgiving in a way because it really depends on how you load them, right? Like, if do you give them excess electrolyte, which is, of course, you can also limit a bit more, and also maybe do you go more full cells? And yeah, how, how, how you know, how are you trying to simulate as much to, uh, let's say, a cylindrical 8650 full cell? So I'm just curious how you understand a bit better um, because I, it's, I think there's always an interesting time, right? Like, interesting step. How do you go from something where you validate it maybe more on the basic level, but then of course there's a lot of you know challenges to go to the next step. So I'm just curious about maybe all these steps you have taken there, or how you're approaching it and how you're seeing it. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and uh, I think a lot of those challenges are sort of um, maybe not well known, but um, it's, a, it's a, certainly a known challenge. Um, and so that's just the the stage that we we're currently at. We I don't know if Andre mentioned, but we, we came out of stealth mode um, about 10 months ago now, and that was with the commissioning of our pilot plan and in-house battery testing. Um, and so this is sort of how far we've come in that time. We, we're hoping to add our in-house, well, to expand our in-house testing capabilities to pouch cells in the near future. But to answer your question, I think in the meantime, we're, we're kind of, thus far successfully and hopefully ongoing leveraging sort of expertise um with our partners or ultimately with with customers for this material who have shown a lot of interest where we can leverage a lot of their specialist expertise not just in cell manufacturing but also silicon specifically um, and I, I know you mentioned the electrolyte such an important component every component's important but and what 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 we like to say is that every every nanosilicon is different, uh, and all these individual challenges of electrolyte and uh, electrode manufacturing they all exist for all nanosilicon materials, but each time the challenge is slightly different. So um, to be able to work with people who have expertise in this area, I think that's that's been super valuable for us. Don't know if you have a, another comment, Andre. Yeah, I think uh, just to add to 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 that too, Simon, you're you know 100 right. I mean, the silicon has been a challenging material for so quite some time here. You know, especially you know at, at you know full substitution of graphite. And so, I think what we've really been focused on, you know, up to this point was let's make you know let's let's optimize our process to be able to make the the most stable nanosilicon material that we can make with the highest capacity that we can make and then from there <clears throat> take that material now and scale that into pouch cells and and uh, full cells and and so we've kind of established that and as jake mentioned the next steps are you know working you know both internally as well as with uh you know outside partners um you know on this and um and i think that at the end of the day i mean one of the things that we see that's kind of unique you know about our silicon is having it in that nanotube structure, all right, um, 
versus a spherical, you know, nano uh, versus a spherical silicon. A spherical sw- a silicon is going to swell in all directions. Where if you've got a kind of hollow nanotubular silicon, the material swells about half the rate that a spherical one will because of its kind of kind of one dimension. So half of the swelling takes place inside the hollow tube and um, the other half on the outside. And so, so that's been something that's been measured and, and, um, you know, compared. And, um, and so that, that makes it, you know, you know, easier, but then there's also other things too, obviously, as you well know, that, that we may, you know, look at as far as like, you know, carbon coating the material, you know, by atomic layer deposition or other types of coatings that are, um, you know, that would only, you know, start to improve the, the long-term, you know, capacity retention. Um, and so, um, so for sure there's, um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, but the, um, the ability for us to be able to kind of tailor our process to be able to make, to really kind of tailor the morphology and tailor the, the properties of the silicon itself, I think kind of give us a bit of a, of an advantage, um, in being able to get there, um, relatively, you know, quicker i would say thanks for sharing and i think i mean it's interesting right and i think also both again from from my arms and my perspective right i mean both you know so being you know having our own startups with Pulsenix and my and patrick associates for me is that i think you know we always very interested you know how how you know how companies start you know from, from maybe an idea and how they develop in a commercial product and one thing i find quite interesting is and i think i agree with what you're saying right like if you can get a customer to do a lot of the hard work for you. I mean, that's that's one of the best, um, yeah. you know, positions you can be in. The the thing I find interesting, and, and it's maybe also you know honest question on that, and maybe get your sense, you know, feeling on that, um, because we have definitely seen like I remember the times, you know, maybe five six years ago, or so where quite a lot of you know people around me would start you know startups in the in the battery space and maybe materials or more processes or you know all kinds of you know cool hard tech, and there was always the the thought, like, if you just have something cool, um, people will just, you know, again, like, tr- want to try it out and implement it in their materials, etc. But essentially, most of these are like pretty much all of the cases I know, at least from the time. So, some curious also about how maybe it feels now. They all had to really go in commercial, the scale, like not like commercial scale from production, but getting commercial form factors. What I mean again, eighteen six fifty, or at least some pouches probably even more standardized cylindrical if possible. And again, they don't, didn't have to do it in-house. They just gave it to other, you know, contract manufacturer and they would assemble for them. And of course, you need a good one. That's another topic yeah. um, to, to, because then you have to optimize it and you have to find the right electrolytes and make sure it matches your cathode and its balance. And again, it gets complicated. And it's, of course, money. So I'm just curious, sorry for the long-winded question. Yeah. Um, like, how are you seeing right now? Do you feel like the market has appetite and seems rather open to kind of test something new and again, do a bit of the legwork for you? Or do you think in the end of the day, you really have to go through the steps you mentioned, power cells, et cetera? That's a great question. Um, the, the, from our perspective, I mean, I think it's kind of a testament to the unmet need for silicon. Um, the market has a huge appetite. That said, um, I'll give you kind of our experience with being able to you know to 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 get that interest um the um most of the companies that we're working with right now and unfortunately we can't say who but these are you know major players in the industry that are 
you know, that, you know, been around for, for a long time and know what they're doing, but, you know, we could, they, they could care less if we sent them a, a sample that was, you know, the best material they've ever seen in their life. Um, perfect prototyped and everything like that. Um, they don't care so much about that. If that's been made on a process, that's not commercial or scalable or safe. Right. Um, and so, um, they would rather see um, a material from uh, a company that maybe the, the material isn't perfect, you know, yet. However, the process is scalable. It can be done economically. It's a safe process. It's a, it's a environmentally friendly, you know, process. Um, that's, that's where, you know, I think the, the, the hurdle, you know, is, you know, at least in our space. And, um, and, you know, what we've need to, you know, what we've had to kind of need to demonstrate, you know, to, uh, to, to get them there. And once, once they know that that's the case, um, they obviously know that there's expertise that they have within their, you know, th themselves that could actually only be accretive to, you know, to what, you know, to what we're doing because they've, you know, many of these companies have their own IP on, you know, on making nanosilicon, you know, work. Um, and graphite blends or by itself or, you know, certain types of coatings, you know, so it kind of enables them to be able to use some of their unique capabilities and, you know, knowledge. Um, the important thing is that there's a material that can be reproduced, um, you know, on a commercial basis. And so with that, that's been kind of the uniform conventional, you know, um, feedback that we've seen from you know from companies you know that we're working with at this point that i hope that answers your question yeah for sure no i really like that mm -hmm. clip and i think that's definitely overlays with um definitely also what i've seen from other startups as you say like it has really been about the, the scalability of things um as, as a limiting factor and how this has been prioritized at times over maybe as you say to get the best performance in the beginning but as you say like if you cannot figure out the process but it's interesting, right? Because there's definitely, if you look in the market, there's both approaches available, right? And yeah. as, as a, you're definitely able to choose from either and maybe approach either. And often probably what a lot of companies will do is actually entertain all directions, right? As long as they get their hand on something which succeeds either both, but both in performance as well as in scalability, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, that, you know, these, these labs are incredibly busy. Right. You know, looking at not just anode material, cathode material, separators, electrolytes, you know, so many different, you know, different things. Also qualifying, you know, new sources, especially in the U.S., right? I mean, qualifying new sources of of materials and trying to, you know, determine which, you know, which companies have a, you know, a, a process that, you know, they can kind of get behind here. So, yeah, I think the the commercial the commercial feasibility of um of a new material coming to a market is, 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 is definitely from, again, our experience, um, you know, the biggest, you know, the biggest driver, um, of course the material has to work, right. I mean, it has to show, you know, signs that, okay, this is something that, you know, this can, this looks good. They, you know, the, the material, is it pure? Is it reproducible? Is it, you know, is it, um, you know, consistent? So these are the types of things I think that really help get, the buy-in from 
the commercial partners, which I think anyone developing any new generation or, or next generation material for, you know, electric vehicles, even in current generation, you know, it is, I think, crucial to the commercialization has to be done in conjunction with, you know, with an end user, you know, or, a you know, a, a strategic partner, you know, um, I think without that, you know, you're, 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 you're really limited, um, you know, and because even a, a contract research lab can, can do prototypes and things like that. And that, you know, that's obviously helpful and needed. Um, but when you can develop it with the customer, that's, um, I think that's really, it, you know, increases your probability of success in a significant way. It's not always easy to get there, you know, so. Thank you, Andre. Um, I think one last question pertaining to the commercial feasibility, actually, this is a very interesting uh, process. And, and it seems like, uh, you know, Simon's been, been interested and it seems also Nagoto's question a little bit uh, is, uh, is implying or asking about that. With uh, Pulsenix, which is a company that um, uh, I've co-founded, uh, we develop characterization tools. So whenever we work with clients, they actually want to do a test run usually, and they have specific metrics associated with uh, evaluating the tool that they'd like to look at, things like measurement accuracies and consistencies and drift and so on and so forth. For you, what does that look like as a materials company? And what are they benchmarking your performance against? Is it other nanosilicon uh, materials um, you know, from potential uh, competitors and so on? Are you creating the benchmark um, in terms of what you should be meeting in terms of performance metrics, or are they? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think that you know, there are some companies that we're working with that have already utilized um, is already utilizing commercially some silicon in their batteries, um, and so there are you know tests that we do that are kind of mimicking you know the the existing cell chemistry that they're using at the right at the same loadings and whatnot, and uh, and so um, so there's 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 situations like that, and then there's you know, other situations where, yeah, I think it's more of a, you know, their target is to be able to hit a certain MAHG, you know, with a, you know, um, you know, to get a certain improvement for their next generation batteries and, and, uh, you know, how much of our material do we need to substitute in graphite to be able to get it there. Um, and, um, you know, some people have completely different, you know, um, have IP on, you know, um, on their actual cell design, right, where they can use significantly less binder or conductive additives and incorporate, you know, much more silicon because the the cell design is, you know, enables it to be able to, you know, handle swelling, you know, um, and they're, you know, looking more for, you know, high energy density, you know, um, and high capacity type battery, you know, uh, performance. So, yeah, it's a little bit, you know, different across the board, but, the um i think that, you know at the end of the day the most important thing that they're looking for is how does it perform in a battery right and then you know is it reproducible is it stable um because clearly you know one sample is not going to be the, the the you know the the only one it goes you're going to have one sample then the, then the next sample is going to be a larger one and then no not saying it's going to be even larger than that and so you know obviously knowing that you've got 
your material characterized. You know, essentially, as I mentioned earlier, what we do is every single sample we send out goes through extensive quality control testing. Um, again, from XRF, XRD, BET, and we also do a, you know, and we also do, you know, make a battery as well. We're not just, you know, chucking samples over the fence here without a full evaluation of the material before we let it go. And so, um, so yeah, I think that, you know, the, I think that's very important, you know, I think to them as well, uh, to know that you've got the ability to, to, to consistently produce product and that you're also not using their R&D time to, to do that work for you. Um, you know, that shows a commitment to your quality of your product and also to, you know, to their, to their precious R and D resources as well. So, um, that's what we do on our side. Um, you know, and what we intended to do, you know, at every scale that we, we, you know, we scale into. Brilliant. Thank you. And I think with this one, we are getting towards the end of the time, but I want to, we want to thank you both Andre and Jake for, for sharing your insight with us. And I think, you know, we're always rooting for the startups. We're wishing you all the, all the best on the journey. And we know it's not always easy and as <laughs> as any startup, but I think it's especially anywhere you go into tech, there's always, you know, wins and, and challenges and, um, all these, all these good you know, things together, but really, really appreciating you sharing your insights and you know, your experience so far. And hopefully we see you in some other setting as well and see your updates and hopefully progressing through it. Um, I also really want to thank everyone joining today and thanks for, for your questions and, and engaging. And again, anybody also listening to all of the, the platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere else. If you're looking for this, you can look for Battery Insiders. That's the name of the podcast. And this was a Battery Evolution Clubhouse um, session today. And yeah, if you want to get notified about any of these sessions, you can also go on batteryinsiders.com and um, sign up to the new uh, email newsletter, email notification, and you get a notification before we do any of these sessions as well. But yeah, with this, again, thanks. Massive thanks also to Andre and Jake as well as Maram for co-hosting today and wishing you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Maram. And uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, for attending. We really uh, appreciated the uh, the good questions and the opportunity to, um, you know, to introduce ourselves to you all. So um, thank you again. Wish you all a great weekend and we'll uh, look forward to uh, speaking again soon, hopefully. Yes. Thank, thank you both for, for having us on. Thank you, Andre and Jake. Uh, have a great rest of your day, everyone. Weekend, actually. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>